it is a great pleasure, with great pleasure, that I invite you to turn in your Bibles to God's holy and authoritative word to us in Paul's first letter to Timothy. We'll look at chapter 6. Fundamental question that each and every disciple of Jesus, I believe, should be asking themselves these days is, how is the greatness of God displayed in and through the household of God in the midst of a global pandemic? If we believe uh, that God rules and reigns over all things, including the COVID-19 virus, then our concern should be, what is the purpose of God in these times for the people of God? A once-in-a-generation event like this of such all-encompassing impact must not be wasted. It should be harvested. And certainly, one of the many purposes of God in all of the hassles and the headaches associated with the coronavirus is, I believe, to teach us, to teach us to fight for godly contentment by faith and not by works. Our response, our reaction to every unwelcome, unpleasant circumstance related to COVID-19 is an occasion to live in the good of the gospel. In other words, this is a season, it's an occasion to honor God by entrusting ourselves to God. And the text that we come to today strikes, I believe, right at the very heart of this matter. And so I'm going to invite you to follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to begin in the the second half of the second verse. I'm going to read through verse 10. And as we have um, over these last weeks, as we've been going through this letter, if you are able... I want to invite you as an expression of honoring God's word, regarding God's word, revering God's word, prizing God's word. Please stand uh, while I read this text. The Apostle Paul writes, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. What this text addresses, what you communicate here to us, your people gathered today, Father, it is a universal matter of concern. Who among us would not find our hearts running, pursuing money, wealth, riches, all that money can buy? And not that that is necessarily in and of itself evil, but where it can go to is eroding to the health of our souls and apparently has ripple effects on a spiritual community. And so, Lord, we would ask today that you would deal with us gently but firmly and speak to us and help us and pour out your grace upon us that we might understand you, that we might behold you, That we might know what it is to have our souls completely satisfied in you as with the richest of foods. This, oh God, is a miracle we cannot produce in and of ourselves. And so we look to you. We look to Jesus. We look to our Savior. We look to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Be poured out upon us now for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy so that the people of the church in Ephesus would know how they ought to behave toward one another. And and Paul wrote this letter more specifically because the people of the church in Ephesus were not behaving well toward one another. It was a broken spiritual household. It is plain from the text that I just read, vocabulary like envy, dissension, slander. The the Ephesian church seems to have resembled more the partisan political politics of Washington, D.C. than than what one would expect of a local church. And Paul holds the former elders of this church responsible for creating a culture characterized by evil suspicion and constant friction. Perhaps you can imagine a family system where there is no trust and every conversation ends in a fight. It is is miserable. It is exhausting. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10, 
the Apostle Paul offers a field guide for moving from identifying bad fruit to treating the sickness at its root. Notice the emerging theme in words like unhealthy craving, verse 4. Godliness is a means of gain, verse 6. Verse 9 says desire to be rich. It says harmful desires. Verse 10, love of money. Verse 10, this craving. What do you you think Paul's driving at here? What's the root of such soul-crushing, God-dishonoring fruit? Where Where does the heart work need to be done? And where does the gospel need to be applied? So what if I told you that the root issue, I believe what the root issue is here, tearing apart this uh, relational and spiritual fabric of, a, of the church in Ephesus. What if I told you that I believe it was covetousness? A church was dying because of blatant disregard for the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. According to verse 5, there had been elders in the church who had been teaching the people that godliness was a means to gain. In other words, they were teaching that if you behave a certain way, if you just behave like Christians ought to behave, then things will go well for you. This teaching is what we would call today moralism. The main point of moralism is godliness is a means of gain. If you live right, things go right. If you don't live right, things don't go right. Moralism is a false doctrine, and it is alive and well today. And what makes moralism so dangerous is that it reduces Jesus' death on the cross to simply a means of getting things. Things like a good life, happy life, problem-free life. In other words, the teaching of moralism feeds and nourishes a heart of covetousness. And Paul responds to this. He responds to it forcefully, firmly, to the dangerous doctrine in verse 6. Godliness is not a means of gain. Rather, godliness with contentment is great gain. Not just gain, great gain. See that? So so this is key, I believe, in understanding the nature and the meaning of what the Bible describes as covetousness. Godliness is not a means to some end other than God. Rather, great gain is discovered in godliness with contentment. So to covet... Covet is to want something with very strong desire. It has been 
rightly said, I like this definition, covetousness means wanting something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Covetous means wanting something so much that you lose your contentment in God. So in other words, covetousness is the opposite of contentment in God. Or to say it another way, when covetous, when, say it this way, when contentment with God decreases, covetousness for gain increases. When contentment with God diminishes, frustration with unwelcome, unpleasant circumstances rises. Isn't this the, the issues, isn't this why the issues that rise on account of this current global health crisis make us all feel at times like we're, you're walking on eggshells. You know, I see one neighbor and if, I, if I'm not wearing a mask, they're just like, whoa. And if I see somebody else, you know, they're not wearing a mask and they, they're just like, you know, we, don't, we need to go to war and get these people out of office and restrain us and our liberties and whatnot. It, 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 it's, it's this kind of dissension and evil suspicion that we see in the news and in people's eyes that reveal how content with God we really are. Maybe you, um, maybe you remember, it's not that many weeks ago, I think, when you know, the, um, it was reported that certain U.S. senators who had been informed in advance of the rising coronavirus pandemic possibilities, they liquidated all their stock portfolios in order to protect their retirement savings and save their known necks. And it kind of bothersome to hear <laughs> because they had information that other people didn't have. They were able to avoid losses that others have had to endure. Or perhaps at the beginning of all this, you, you rush to Costco or Hy-Vee or Target or wherever, and in those early weeks of the quarantine, only, you, you got there only to discover that others had bought up all of the toilet paper and disinfectant wipes. Or maybe you have heard that while some businesses are going under and people are losing their jobs because of it, other businesses are capitalizing on the pandemic to justify their downsizing for the sake of skimming greater profit margins. They don't need to let people off. A global pandemic will bring the best out of some, but often, more often, it reveals a culture of greed that rises out of the soil of covetousness. And so, loved ones, the, the, the root bearing the fruit of brokenness and dysfunction in that first century church in Ephesus, it's the same root feeding the suspicion and friction that is alive and well in marriages, in families, in communities, nations, people groups all over the world today. And so I believe that Paul's purpose here in 1 Timothy 6, 2 to 10 is to win the people of the church in Ephesus, to win God's redeemed and justified people back from covetousness to contentment in all that God is for them in Christ Jesus.
That's his purpose. He's, he's aiming to win us, win us back from covetousness and into con- contentment in all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. And if you have succumbed to covetousness, a natural disposition that is <laughs> present in each and every one of us, Paul's aim is to win you back. And he does so, one, by giving us reasons, reasons why we should not be covetous. He, he just piles up reasons here as to the dangers of covetousness. And he also aims to win us back by giving reasons why we should be content. Later in this text, um, he does speak to us as to how we do this, but we will save that for next week. But let's, for now, join Paul in considering, considering carefully, considering sober-mindedly, considering tender-heartedly, and for the good of our souls and, and loved ones, for the health of Emmaus Road Church, these great dangers of covetousness. Covetousness is a serious and and destructive condition of the heart because it is first and above all idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It cannot be said any more plainly than Paul says it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where he writes, Put to death, therefore, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. And that's because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God, it begins to get from somewhere else. Covetousness is wanting something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Covetousness is losing your contentment in God so that you start to seek it, pursue it, in something, somewhere, someone else. This is so clear from the Ten Commandments, which remarkably, I think, begin and end with virtually the same commandment. The first commandment, as some of you may remember, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, says, You shall have no other gods before me. And then the Tenth Commandment, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Spans the whole thing. In other words, covetousness is a heart divided between two gods. And Paul calls this idolatry. And this idolatry had been cultivated in the Ephesian church. It had been cultivated by the teaching of elders who had mishandled the meaning and the intention of the Old Testament law. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, certain persons, by swerving from these, namely sound doctrine, verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it 
lawfully. So, so Paul's burden through, throughout this letter is to make this connection between flawed teaching, errant doctrine, and this relational disaster happening in the Ephesian church. In chapter 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So you see, the, the unintended consequence of a moralistic perspective on the Ten Commandments is... <laughs> Remarkably, the very idolatry that the Ten Commandments forbids. Recognizing the presence of covetousness in our hearts should cause us to tremble. It is dark. It is idolatrous. And it is contagious. We might say in today's vernacular, it is virulent. That is, and this is the second thing, Covetousness gives rise to many other sins. It's a breeding ground for other evils. Look at verses 9 and 10. The love of money, where you have covetousness, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, it's covetousness, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Frustrated desires are the starting point of all manner of pain. James chapter 4, verse 2, familiar to so many of us. You desire, do not have, that's covetousness, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Have you had to fend off a verbal assault because someone you care about couldn't have what they wanted? Some households are a bloody battlefield. And that's why, thirdly, covetousness is devastating to community. Particularly healthy spiritual community. Verses 4 and 5 describe the kind of cultural product that is a result of covetousness unrestrained. Listen. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce, so here comes the fruit, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant Friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, where there exists a social, relational culture of distrust and fear, suspicion, perpetual tension, you can be sure that covetousness is a fundamental and systemic issue that has gone unaddressed and excused and justified for a long, long, long time. Fourthly, covetousness lets you down when you need 
help more than any other time. And you know what time that is? In verse 7, Paul says, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You know what time that is? When you can't take anything out of the world? It's that moment when you're about to leave the world. At that moment, when you're at death's doorstep, what we need more than anything is peace and security and contentment and hope in God. More than at any other time in our lives. And at that moment, on death's doorstep, do you really believe that any of the things that your money could buy will be of any practical help in comforting and strengthening you in that moment? The, the only thing that we will take with us into eternity is the measure of contentment that we experience in God. One commentator raised this question. He says, if I drop dead right now, would I take with me a payload of pleasure in God or would I stand before Him with an empty void where all my stuff used to be? It's a significant reason to consider repenting, turning from covetousness. Here's the last reason Paul gives in this text, I believe, for putting off and repenting of covetousness. And that is, ultimately, ultimately, covetousness brings ruin to a person's spiritual life. In verse 9, Paul writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people. It just, it's a graphic image to me, just plunging, like cannonballing, like into ruin and destruction. Jesus' parable of the soils, he refers to some who, who hear the word, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, covetousness, enter in, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Losing one's contentment in God to the point one seeks it somewhere else is a, it's a solemn reality for each and every one of us probe and take seriously to consider. And Paul longs for the people of the household of God to be filled with pleasure and contentment in the grace, greatness of God. If there's, if there's something to be covetous about, it's God. If there's something to covet, it's more of Jesus. If there's something to covet, it's more of the fullness and life of the Spirit. And so he he piles up these reasons that, that contribute to the means by which we may escape the deceptive and destructive allurements of covetousness. And so, here's some, here's some reasons to consider contentment as a better alternative. Contentment in God causes sin to diminish. I mean, if covetous means that I, I desire something so much that I lose my contentment in God, then it would follow that earnestly pursuing and experiencing the greater pleasures of contentment in God will 
cause the lesser pleasures of satisfaction in lesser things to decrease. Again, this is for next week, but look at verses 11 and 12 for just a moment where Paul writes, As for you, O man of God, flee from these things. That is, flee from the lesser pleasures that we experience through covetousness. And instead, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. And how do you do that? Verse 17. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. because Riches are lesser pleasures because they're so uncertain. But, but put your hope, set your hope on God who richly and certainly will provide us with everything to enjoy. In other words, the, the way that we fulfill the duty of the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, is through keeping the first commandment, namely setting our hope by faith above all else on God Himself. We're going to look more carefully, like I said, at that more um, next week. But for now, the, the way we fight the good fight of faith, it's by setting our hope on the Lord, His faithfulness to keep His promise to richly supply all that we need. And in doing so, we discover that godliness with contentment, that's where we find and experience great gain. Second, contentment in God powerfully, wonderfully drives us deeper into Christ. I mean, how can anyone ever pursue contentment in God fully? <laughs> as, much as, as much as He is worthy to be pursued. How, how do we obey the command, delight yourself in the Lord? How do you do that? No person on earth can, can free his or her heart of coveting. It just comes so natural to us. And just as surely as no person on earth can simply make their hearts feel pleasure in the Lord, we need a great Savior. This impossibility should cause us to make us, make Jesus more precious to us. Shouldn't it move us to turn away from ourselves? Shouldn't it cause us to run to, to Jesus to forgive us and to cleanse our hearts in a way that we cannot do ourselves. The goal of going from fruit to root is for the Spirit of Christ to bring us to repentance and renewed faith, deeper faith, deeper trust in Christ. In, in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Another, another good reason for contentment is that contentment in God promotes a culture of peace and love and unity in the household of God. We're, 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 whenever coveting diminishes in the hearts of the people of the church, it is then that love for one another is nourished, it's hydrated, it just, it's freshened, it's cultivated. And that's because 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, love is patient and kind, love does not envy, 
It's not coveting. It doesn't boast. When coveting diminishes, then believers in the church, they don't face their difficulties or their successes by themselves, but rather in fellowship with one another. It's not about competition. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's not an occasion for envy and dissension. It's an occasion for sweet communion. And so the root of contentment in all that God is for us in Christ, it, it, it produces sweet God-honoring fruit like a healthy social relational bond. And then, contentment in God, I believe, reminds us that wealth in and of itself cannot produce or sustain joy. It just puts, it puts money in perspective. There's nothing wrong with wealth, money, in and of itself. But so often today, we, we, we imagine, we, we, we conjure up this imaginary reality of, oh, if only I could hit the jackpot, then I'd be happy. Or we fantasize, oh, if only I would just win that lottery, then I'd be so content. But God's good law, applied rightly, challenges those desires and reminds us that true joy, enduring joy, comes only when we delight ourselves in God and are content with the provisions He has ordained for our lives. Godliness with contentment, is gain. No, it's great gain. And in Philippians 4.11, Paul writes an encouraging thing. that This is something that we can all make progress in. I have learned, Paul says, in whatever situation I am, to be content. So loved ones, Contentment in every circumstance is something in which we can make great progress. We learn it. We can discover it. We can taste it. Not by any works that we can do, but by entrusting ourselves to the abundant and natural, supernatural help there is in Christ Jesus. So let's turn and trust Him. Call on Him now. We're going to do that in the song. Let's stand together. Pray with me. Father, as these musicians come, we prepare to, to sing from our hearts. We invite you to come and put on display your grace, your help, your empowerment. Holy Spirit of God, Open the eyes of our hearts to the glories of God for us that there are in such richness, such fullness in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Do this so that our hearts are fully satisfied in you, that our contentment in who you are for us would increase. And that in increasing our contentment in you, the devastating effects of covetousness would decrease and diminish in every possible way. We ask this, God. We ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus, the Christ, our Lord. Amen.